hello and good morning, probably. I'm very tired and Lachlan. Um, it's not going to help that I'm going to put soft, sleepy music over this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've come to terms with the fact that this is most likely a meditative podcast. Um, especially after Mark Blug number one. Anyway, here's the sequel. Um, bit of a bit of a tricky one. I've actually lured you in under the guise that this was Mark Blug number two, but instead we're going to skip ahead <laughs> to uh, defending the one percent by N. Gregory Mankiewicz. Man, man, Q. Yep. M A N K I W. Man, Q. I, I don't know. But first, we've got a sponsor. Um, we've got a sponsor. <laughs> it's this video is po- podcast. Sorry, is sponsored by. Do try not to forget things. Do you forget things on the regular? Do you want to not forget things? Try not forgetting things. Use the coupon code earring and pumpkin to not forget things. Yep, that's the end of our sponsored message. So I think we'll dive on in. So I can go to bed and sleep. Yes. Defending the One Percent by N. Gregory Mankiw. Still not sure what the N in his name stands for. Nigel, Nicholas, Nancy, Nonathan, I don't know. Imagine a society with perfect economic equality. Let's let that sink in, listeners. Society with perfect economic equality. Wow. Wow. Oh boy, I'm really tired. <laughs> Let's get through this. Perhaps out of sheer coincidence, the supply and demand for different types of labor happen to produce an equilibrium in which everyone earns exactly the same income. As a result, no one worries about the gap between the rich and poor, and no one debates to what extent public policy should make income redistribution a priority. Because people can earn the value of their marginal product, everyone has the appropriate incentive to provide the efficient amount of effort. The government is still needed to provide public goods such as national defence, but those are financed with a lump sum tax. There is no need for taxes that would distort incentives such as an income tax because they would be strictly worse for everyone. The society enjoys not only perfect equality but also perfect efficiency. 
Then, one day, this egalitarian utopia is disturbed by an entrepreneur with an idea for a new product. Think of the entrepreneur Steve Jobs as he develops the iPod, JK Rowling as she writes her Harry Potter books, or Steven Spielberg as he directs his blockbuster movies. When the, um, when the entrepreneur's product is introduced, everyone in society wants to buy it. They each part with, say, $100. The transaction is a voluntary exchange so it must make both the buyer and the seller better off. But because there are many buyers and only one seller, the distribution of economic well-being is now vastly unequal. The new product makes the entrepreneur much richer than everyone else. The society now faces a new set of questions. How should the entrepreneurial disturbance in this formerly egalitarian outcome alter public society? Should public policy remain the same because the situation was initially acceptable and the entrepreneur improved it for everyone? Or should government policymakers deplore the resulting inequality and use their powers to tax and transfer to spread the gains more equally? Sorry, I'm flipping over. I'm flipping the page. Hold on. Oh, I shouldn't have stapled it. Now it's now it's got a crease in the corner. Okay. In my view, this thought experiment captures in an extreme and stylized way what has happened to US society over the past several decades. Since the 1970s, average incomes have grown, but their growth has not been uniform across the income distribution. The incomes at the top, especially in the top 1%, have grown much faster than average. These high earners have made significant economic contributions, but they have also reaped large gains. The question for public policy is what, if anything, to do about it. This development is one of the largest challenges facing the body politic. A few numbers illustrate the magnitude of the issue. The best data we have on the upper tail of the income distribution come from Piketty and Says, 2003, with updates, tabulations of individual tax returns. Even these numbers, though, are subject to some controversy. Oh, sorry, hot. These are in. Oh, what are they called? You know the little curves. The little curves. Um, man, I can't remember. Brackets. They're in brackets. So, it has to be whispered. Even these numbers, though, are subject to some controversy. The tax code changes over time, altering the incentives to receive and report comp compensation in alternative forms. Close bracket. According to their numbers, the share of income, excluding capital gains, earned by the top 1% rose from 7.7% 7 .7 in 1973 to 17.4% in 2010. Even more striking is the share earned by the top 0.01%, an elite group that, in 2010, had a membership requirement of annual income exceeding $5.9 million. This group's share of total income rose from 0.5% in 1973 to 3.3% in 2010. These numbers are not easily ignored. Indeed, they are no small part motivated the Occupy, by the Occupy movement, and they have led to calls from policymakers on the left to make the tax code more progressive. 
At the outset, it is worth noting that addressing the issue of rising inequality necessarily involves not just economics, but also a healthy dose of political philosophy. We economists must recognise not only the limits of what we know about inequality's causes, but also the limits on the ability of our discipline to prescribe policy responses. Economists who discuss policy responses to increasing inequality are often playing the role of amateur political philosopher and, ad- oh, sorry, brackets, and, admittedly, I will do th- so in this essay. So a bit of a bit of a seat, bit of a giveaway, a spoiler alert. Given the topic, that is perhaps inevitable. But it is useful to keep in mind when we are writing as economists and when we are venturing beyond the boundaries of our professional expertise. End of chapter one. Boy, oh boy. Usually I take a break, but I'm just so enthralled by this at the moment. Just want to keep going. Is inequality inefficient? Question mark. It is tempting for economists to author inequalities to suggest that the issue involves not just inequality per se, but also economic inefficiency. Discussion of inequality necessarily involves our social and political values, but if inequality also entails inefficiency, those normative judgments are more easily agreed upon. The Pareto criterion is the clearest case. If we can make some people better off without making anyone worse off, who could possibly object? Yet for the question at hand, this criterion does not take us very far. As, a, as far as I know, no one has proposed my credible policy intervention to deal with rising inequality that will make everyone, including those at the very top, better off. More common is the claim that inequality is inefficient in the sense of shrinking the size of the economic pie. That is, oh sorry, brackets, that is inefficiency is being of the Caldor-Hicks criterion. Close bracket. If the top 1% is earning an extra $1 in some way that reduces the incomes of the middle class and the poor by $2, then, maybe, then many people will see that as a social problem worth addressing. For example, suppose the rising income share of the top 1% were largely attributable to successful rent-seeking. Imagine that the government were to favour its political allies by granting them monopoly power over certain products favourable regulations or restrictions on trade. Such a policy would likely lead to both inequality and inefficiency. Economists of all stripes would deplore it. I certainly would. Okay, buddy. He certainly would. Alright, buddy. Friend of the people. Buddy. Mr. Mr. Defending Defending the 1% buddy. Mm, Sounds like a sleazebag to me. Sounds like a wannabe 1% to me. Sorry, I should keep my opinions out of this. Strictly professional. Joseph Stiglitz's 2012 book, The Price of Inequality, spends many pages trying to convince the reader that such rent-seeking is a primary driving force behind the growing incomes of the rich. This essay is not the place for a book review, but I can report that I was not convinced. Stiglitz's narrative relies more on exhortation and anecdote than on systematic evidence. There is no good reason to believe that rent-seeking by the rich is more 
pervasive today than it was in the 1970s, when the income share of the top 1% was much lower than it is today. I am more persuaded by the thesis advanced by Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz, 2008, in their book, The Race Between Education and Technology. Golden and Katz argue that skill-biased technological change continually increases the demand for skilled labour. By itself, this force tends to increase the earnings gap between skilled and unskilled workers, thereby increasing inequality. Society can offset the effect of this demand shift by increasing the supply of skilled labour at an even faster pace, as it did in the 50s and the 60s. Sorry, I should specify the 1950s and the 1960s. Good. In this case, the earnings gap need not rise, and indeed can even decline, as in fact occurred. But when the pace of educational advance slows down, as it did in the 1970s, the increasing demand for skilled labour will naturally cause inequality to rise. The story of rising inequality, therefore, is not primarily about politics and rent-seeking, but rather about supply and demand. Who would have guessed it? Who would have guessed supply and demand? Good old neoclassical economy. Wow. To be sure, Golden and Katz focus their work on the broad changes in inequality, not on the incomes of the top 1% in particular. Oh, that was not, that was, that was, I put my, <laughs> put my emphasis all, all over the place in that sentence. I thought there was a comma coming, but it was a full stop, so I set up for a comma, but it was actually just a flat end to the sentence. I'm going to start that again. To be sure, Golden and Katz focus their work on the broad changes in inequality, not on the incomes of the top 1% in particular. Mm, beautiful. But it is natural to, to suspect that similar forces are at work. The income share of the top 1% exhibits a U-shaped pattern, falling from the 1950s to the 1970s and rising from the 1970s to the present. The earnings differentials between skilled and unskilled workers studied by Golden and Katz follow a similar U-shaped pattern. If Golden and Katz are right that the broad changes in inequality have been driven by the interaction between technology and education, rather than changes in rent-seeking through the political process, then it would seem an unlikely coincidence that the parallel changes at the top have been driven by something entirely different. Rather, it seems that changes in technology have allowed a small number of highly educated and exceptionally talented individuals to command superstar incomes in ways that were not possible a generation ago. Oh, it's kind of gross. It's kind of gross referring to them as a highly educated and exceptionally talented group of individuals. I don't know. I'm biased. I am very biased. But it just, it just, it's yuck to say it like that. Like, they don't need the credit. Yeah, they don't need the compliments. They've got the money. They've got everything. Probably wouldn't even recognize half of them if there are pictures of all of them in front of me. Or like names. Probably wouldn't even be able to tell you if I knew anyone in that top like 1%. Like, I don't know. Bill Gates is like the obvious one, but like, I don't even know. Is he even in the top 1%? Is he? Probably. But I don't know. I don't know. I feel like most of them are just in the shadows. It's scary. Sorry. Um, 
doing this entirely unprofessionally. I'll, I should stop. I'll stop after this chapter, I guess. I guess you can call it a chapter. Eric Binyolfsson. Eric Bin Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee, 2011, advanced this thesis forcefully in their book Race Against the Machine. Love the titles of these books. They write, Aided by digital technologies, entrepreneurs, CEOs, entertainment stars, and financial executives have been able to leverage their talents across global markets and capture reward that would have been unimaginable in earlier times. That's on page 44, if you ever want to double-check that. Nonetheless, to the extent that Stiglitz is right that inefficient rent-seeking is a driving force behind rising inequality, the appropriate policy response is to address the root cause. It is at best incomplete and at worst misleading to describe the situation as simply rising inequality, because inequality here is a symptom of a deeper problem. A progressive system of taxes and transfers might make the outcome more equal, but it would not address the underlying inefficiency. For example, if domestic firms are enriching themselves at the expense of consumers through quotas on imports, as is the case with some agribusiness, oh, sorry, that was in brackets, as is the case with some agribusinesses, close brackets, the solution to the problem entails not a revision of the tax code, but rather a change in trade policy. I am skeptical that such rent-seeking activities are the reason why inequality has risen in recent decades, but I would support attempts to reduce whatever rent-seeking does occur. An especially important and particular difficult case is is the finance industry, where many hefty compensation packages can be found. On the one hand, there is no doubt that this sector plays a crucial role. Those who work in commercial banks, investment banks, hedge funds and other financial firms are in charge of allocating capital and risk, as well as providing liquidity. They decide, in a decentralized and competitive way, which firms and industries need to shrink and which will be encouraged to grow. It makes sense that a nation would allocate many of its most talented and most highly compensated individuals to this activity. On the other hand, some of what occurs in financial firms does smack of rent-seeking. It smacks of rent-seeking, apparently. When a high-frequency trade figures, trader figures out a way to respond to news a fraction of a second faster than a competitor, the vast personal reward may well exceed the social value of what is produced. Devising a legal and regulatory framework to ensure that we get the right kind and amount of financial activity is a difficult task while the solution may well affect the degree of equality and the incomes of the 1%. The issue is primarily one of efficiency. A well-functioning economy needs the correct allocation of talent. The last thing we need is for the next Steve Jobs to forgo Silicon Valley in order to join the high-frequency traders on Wall Street. That is, we shouldn't be concerned about the next Steve Jobs striking it rich, but we want to make sure he strikes it rich in a socially productive way. Ugh, this whole thing is kind of gross. It's kind of gross to read. I don't know. Just talking about people with a lot of money. And it's fine. Like, have a lot of money. Good for you. Good on you, you know? Good on you. But it's almost sad. This dude. N. 
what did we discover his name was? Nancy Gregory Mancule. You know? Let's look up. Let's look him up. I want to see. Maybe he's super rich. But anyway, we'll take a short break. Um, that was the first two chapters of Defending the 1%. Maybe catch after this. Well, that was fun. Catch you tomorrow. Um, for equality of opportunity as a desert deratum, which is the next part of this just purely enjoyable reading. Honestly, I think I enjoy it more the more tired I am. So, sleep well, or don't, you might, it might be morning, I don't know, wake up, get ready, get ready for the day, catch buses and trains and stuff, you know, read newspapers, kiss babies, um, see ya.